Hello and welcome to Tales from the Innerverse, the podcast that explores the inner universe of the human experience. Welcome to episode nine of Tales from the Innerverse. My guest today is Greg Wilker. Greg Wilker is a film producer, a webmaster, a graphic artist, and a deeply close friend of mine from way, way back. Way, way back. Right? So one of the things I thought about um, when I when I decided what I wanted to talk about today was what is a boho? What is a boho? Yeah. Like, it's a misspelling. Okay. It should have been a Z. <laughs> okay. So, but give me, give us some background on how you view the boho mofo for show movement that uh, I came on to late in our early life. Well, it came about in high school with this tight group of friends. It's about, there was really, you know, we, we say there's a core four, but there was probably about six. And um, one of our friends was way ahead of all of us. Like he was into punk rock in 76, 77. And he introduced us to Greg Kinn and the whole berserkly thing. And he actually came up with, bo you know, bohos, the bohemians. And he knew what the fuck they were in the world. <laughs> we had no idea. We just heard, you know, like, yeah, bohos, okay. And, um, it, it, it was a lifestyle that I think was best summed up in our motto, which was confuse the unworthy. And we really thought we were way better than anyone else in many ways. And we did a lot of partying and drugs and, and craziness was part of our whole thing to just like no fear. Um, and and it grew, right? That there was the core four, and that was it in Hayward, was it? Yeah, in high school at Hayward High. And I think like my junior year, and so there was there was the there was the core of us that were the class of eighty, and then there were people we were tight with that were the class of 81 and they kind of came up with a name for themselves. That was, um, I forget what it was, but like they saw themselves as a satellite to us and we came up with names for ourselves. And, um, like I was George Jersey Hamilton and Jersey came from this song that was made up. Um, cows are the future of our nation. There are others produce milk. And um, I, yeah, I think there was a great zaniness that was really a great motto to live life by. Like a really a no fear, go sideways, you know? be the curveball in life. Yeah. So the point at which I linked up with it was actually quite a bit later than that. And you guys had moved to Mill Valley at that point. Was there a lull between the high school years and when we started hanging out in like 84 or 83? Not much of one because, um, Mike took the test to graduate high school right away. So he entered his senior year already. He was 18 and he already graduated. <laughs> so they kicked him out because he didn't care. <laughs> and he, they felt like he was influencing all us who hadn't graduated yet. And so when he left in January, he moved to Sausalito with his mom and sister. And then 
I got kicked out of my house the summer after, you know, of graduation. And I moved in with him and his mom. I guess. So during, during that interim period that you're talking about, right, between basically graduation for him and fall of the school year and then graduation for you in the spring of the following year, you guys still did stuff, right? Like there was some, some security gigs that you did and some various things that you the did. The security gigs came later. So that was when we lived on the mountain in this little rustic cabin and yeah, that came about because what turned into um, the exotic erotic festival mm -hmm. was this thing that was at the, um, where it was the place where the very first um, pranksters, you know, with the dead before they were the dead, the very first acid tests. Uh, it, was it was a facility hall. in San Francisco, Maritime Hall. Yeah, yeah, that's it, Maritime Hall. And uh, so we went to this festival there. and Which is we on Halloween as, night. Yeah, and their security sucked ass. We just took over. <laughs> so you were and about to say that you dressed a certain way. Well, can you tell oh, us? Oh, I know what it was. Like, we knew someone who was playing like we knew a band and we were their security right the dinosaurs we just dominated and the guys who were throwing this thing saw what we were doing and they hired us for their continuing festivals okay and then they fired us when they realized we were just there partying hard but at that point i had kind of gone off the rails and so the parting thing was passing out of my life. Right. So when I came into the sphere of influence of this, it was at a gig where it was probably the last security gig that you guys did. It was a show with John Cipollina and several of his contemporaries in the city. And it was, it was the last security gig that I was aware of you guys doing. Um, and it was after, I guess, the firing and the ethos of it was what intrigued me because when I came into contact with Mike and with um, Steve sometimes referred to as Sid always was, referred to as Sid. <laughs> there was this kind of uh, creative um, cauldron and we would write and we would drink wine and we would make up songs and we, there was poetry and there was a kind of Kerouacian vibe to all of it. Um, and honestly, I think initially it was more peripheral. You didn't live at that house, so well, I didn't see you as often. Is that the one on East Blight though? No, that was the, the one before that um, on Evergreen, I think. Okay. But the idea of bohemianism and my encounter, my understanding of it was more aligned with what I think the original intention of the word, what the definition was, which was this idea of artist community, people who were going against the grain of social structures, trying to reinvent things. And um, of course, liberal use of mind altering substances in order to achieve that sort of thing. This podcast is about the internal experience as a reflection of the external macrocosm. And the reason I'm curious about this thing is as was basically revealed when you said there was fearlessness mm -hmm. and an, uh, an ethos of daredevil activity. And that slowly began to shift as the practical realities of supporting ourselves came into being, right? Yeah, I think what has been proven is a continual high inebriation 
will eventually erode the self in, and not in a positive manner. So the quality of one's life gets impacted in a devastating manner. When so there is such a thing as too much freedom. I, I don't know that that's freedom. Maybe it's not freedom, yeah. yeah. Right. right, right. Like part of my own path that I've looked at is what was, what, why did I choose such a highly dense inebriated state for such a long period of time? What was going on in my family life, in my environment, that um, inebriation was a positive choice in my mind? Now, part of also, we wanted to be rock stars. And, you know, I had this idea of the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, and I heard all the stories. And it wasn't until later in life I realized, oh, they were musicians first, and then they partied. You know, like partying wasn't what made them rock stars. <laughs> that was a byproduct. Yeah. So there was a lot of foolishness that happened in our path. Yeah, uh, agreed. And there was communion too. Uh, and there still is. There's a solid brotherhood with these three gentlemen that I consider the bohos. That's just, we're brothers, you know? Like I may, I may not talk to any one of them, but if I got a call that one was in trouble, I know all th all we'd be there. Right. So there was this um, rite of passage, despite the maybe low spiritual quality of that rite of passage, which I think we could actually debate whether the chemical influences were essential or not. Like, but the idea that internally, the family bond was replaced with a brotherhood bond. And at the root of that, ethos, the new ethos, was this idea of ultimate creativity, of unbridled capacity to seek out new possibilities. It was, right? Because it wasn't just rock stars, was it? Well, that was how we were going to live. Make, make money. That was our career, right? Yeah. There was also, along with this creativity, a thought of um, like one of the um, shirts that Sid made was of, <laughs> I forget the character, but it said, expect a miracle, baby. And there was that. There was like, that's what boho mofo for show means is expect a miracle. Yeah, so, and things did happen. Amazing things happened. Absolutely, right? yeah. Right? Like um, renting of buses and touring Mexico and having an ultimate Frisbee team that, that went on tour in Humboldt and various things like that. And then at one point, there was a house that, which you referred to on East Blydale, which was the Boho house. And I know that um, that was a central part of my social life because at this point I joined the circle. But I don't, it was like such a fluid state and my state of mind was so uh, intoxicated that I don't remember things as clearly. But did you live there for a while too? Yeah. Yeah. I lived there for a few years. So it became a nexus of partying, but also of creativity. Yeah. And so in a sense, the brotherhood expanded. Like how many people do you think would claim beyond the core four would claim to be boho mofo for shows at this point? I don't think any. <laughs> Nobody? Just me? No, that's my elitist mindset. <laughs> they might claim it. They, might, they wouldn't be it, but I'm asking you, like how many lives did it touch? How many people might consider it a central part of their brotherhood? Like if I start listing names, I know I can at list, name at least four or five. Well, I'm guessing Spencer, Talbot. Um, Me. You, 
Pat Rockstar, you know, um, Carson. Carson. Uh, and there's, you know, Mike's brothers, Nigel and Ed. Um, there's Ray. There's the whole core out of uh, Los Angeles. I don't know if you met them. I think they were, you know, they adopted they were, that central ethos too, right? I mean, they were definitely a part of the chaos. Like they even would come up for these um, exotic erotic things. They were part of that. And so essentially in the transition from the seventies to the eighties, there's a new version of the pranksters. Yeah, I think, yeah. And then again, we didn't know the history that we were following. Right, because you weren't following the history. You were right. just following your own instincts, your own right. maladjusted <laughs> compass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seduced by the lure of the 70s image of rock stardom, right? Um, yeah, and I think there were enough hallucinogenics involved where I had experiences and I know a part of my life, there was a point where I was like, okay, this is really happening. I'm not hallucinating this, like this seemingly miraculous thing happened. Why isn't that happening in a normal state of mind? And that was kind of like, I still hold this element of knowing I can live a miraculous life every single moment. It's just me keeping me from that state. So much as like, there's that famous quote about, um, we don't seek love outside of ourselves, we seek the barriers in us that are keeping us from love. I think that's just real with that whole miraculous element of life. Yeah. So there's this crucible, this transformational freedom in quotes, and then we have to start making life work from that point of view. But at the center of it, as you said, is this idea that miracles can happen. And you, we, there were a bunch of them created, right? There was a bunch of things that shouldn't have happened that just made no sense, really. Like the house, right? And then like the artistic endeavors, the t-shirts that got made, the, the different events that happened, right? There, was a, there were various bands that got formed within that circle that had events and things like that. But... The reason I wanted to start here is that there was this deconstruction of form in the context of it, right? And in an alchemical process, that's the first step is the, the deconstruction and then the, the reconstruction piece. And so in both of our history, our internal experience was informed by what was essentially a wide level of freedom. Like we really, we were able to pay bills and work, but we were also able to write whatever we wanted to write, sing whatever we wanted to sing. And we always had each other as companions for the most part, right? Um, Would you say we were men at that point yet? We are not men. We are divas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we gave a shit. There was an element of like, who fucking cares? And, and super animalistic in the sense like, I like to fuck. But I'm not like trying to be a man and fuck. Now, 
that's also, this is coming from memory. Because part of what bothered me when I lived at East Blythdale was the squalor I was living in. And I was no longer inebriated. So there's, um, there was a lot of disconnect for me of this ethereal freedom and living miraculously and creatively, create, creatively to the microcosm of the fucking sink is a, you know, like it's a pigsty. The, the environment is a pigsty. So, and, and all these big dreams that we'd be like, yeah, that's awesome. The next day are gone. Nothing's being realized. Yeah, I'm nodding here for the people who are listening. Right. So, like, to come back to your original question, were we men? Was irrelevant. It was an irrelevant question. The reason I asked is because my answer is that no. That, that part of that process that I'm referring to as alchemical was that the thing that couldn't be denied about life, about what it meant to create relationships, keep the sink clean, right? And move from temporary service level jobs into things that actually had higher level purpose began to just intrude on the lifestyle. Right. So in, in some ways it was, as you described, like animal house-ish. And that was a big film in our life when we were kids. Right. Yeah. And so that animalness, it, it isn't refined enough to be what I would be call a man. And so when I refer to it as a rite of passage, there's this dissolution of our connection to traditional patterns. Like none of us had like, well, we had families that probably wanted us to go to college, but to a large degree, we avoided and, and disrupted and, and decided not to follow the traditional path. And so we went, entered into this cauldron of having all our molecules totally rearranged. And then various people, you probably were first, began to come to their senses that there was something else, that there was something beyond that. Well, here, like Animal House is a brilliant story to bring into this because part of, for me, why that's a great story that I just feel so enlivened by is the after story at the very end with the credits, like Blotto, the Jim Belushi character, went on to be a senator and he marries Mandy, the cheerleader that he was just lusting after through the whole thing. The bad guys became dickheads, you know? Like, so what was happening is Blotto wasn't becoming a senator in real life. Like that story. There was no college to coalesce around. There was no one guiding the process. We were basically lost to the winds of our own, right. and our own devices Our you know, a poorly constructed metaphor, but nonetheless. We weren't finding that happy ending of like, Oh, I did achieve this great dream and I didn't go the normal route but not at, at least not at that stage, right? Now there were things that we could talk about the progression of our lives that did happen that could be measured on that yardstick of, of traditional values of, of life. Um, For instance, you and I both got married. Yeah, and then we both got divorced. Yeah, but so do a lot of people and it was 20 years. That's not the that's not the dream I intended with marriage. No, I understand that. I'm just saying that <clears throat> the biology of it influenced us. Despite this quest for freedom and this kind of abstraction of what that was, eventually the reality of the context of life begins to form new approaches to living and that's the miracle happening right it's still a miracle in that way because we get the sense from the dissolution and the chaos and the dirty sink and the 
the breakdowns in communication and, you know, the late bill paying and the things that were going on, the robberies that happened, right? Things like that. Um, I don't know if they did. Yeah, someone did. Several people got stuff stolen from them there. But Really? Yeah. Hmm. My point is that from that, the the romance of it, the inspiration, the there's this sort of hangover that shows up. And then then people have to coalesce their lives on some level at a greater at a greater approach. For me personally, I also realized there were ramifications to my footloose and fancy free that were negative for people. So there was an element of like, oh, I might be in a joyous state, but if someone's feeling super fucked over by me, then what's really going on? Am I really living a miracle? Yeah. You know, Whitey in the plantation house may be feeling fine with fine food and great wine. How are the rest of the people on that property feeling? Right. Yeah. There was a... One of the things that I think is a watershed event is the production of a film that takes place partially in that home <laughs> that you were intimately involved in. You weren't officially a producer on that project, were you? I was a production manager officially, right? Okay. And, and then was involved with the distribution of it. <clears throat> in the transition from being fully a boho mofo show and into this other form of manhood, this miracle that's taking shape in your life, into this point where you're production manager on this film, the brotherhood piece wasn't changing. The internal connection didn't change, did it? No, and I think I tested that severely in our life when I went crazy. And the fact that my brother stuck, stuck, stayed with me in essence, you know, I think there's a, an element of like when you're forging a sword, what is that process called with the heat, cold water, heat, cold water and forging. Okay. So there was a forging of our relationship. I think that I, for me, that's my. In the fires of that on. chaos. Right. Yeah. But then the cold water of the morning after would always harden it back, the steel back up again, right? You know, I think it was a process like everything in life. Yeah. And then everyone else individually had their challenges and we've mm -hmm. helped each other out through life. You know, there was a point where I was the one who had a place to live and they didn't have any place to live. So they were camping out at my place for a while. So in the evolution of life, things balanced out <laughs> over a period of time. So the inner journey you're talking about that comes out of that chaos into this term period of what you call insanity, where you went literally went crazy and they held space for you while that happened. Um, I don't have a lot of memory of that happening for you. That was up on the mountain. And how long did it last? A lifetime. <laughs> Do you know, and I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but there's an element of that's a part of me. The quick, what do you call it? Spark notes, you know, with the Shakespearean play. Is that what they are? Spark uh, notes, whatever the F they are. Cliff notes. notes. Cliff notes, thank you. All right, the cliff note to that element is, um, we decided we were going to form a band. I was going to be a singer. I was the only one at the cabin at this time. I'm listening to Sympathy for the Devil. And I thought, okay, if that's what it takes, I sell my soul to the devil. I'm good with that. And uh, that started an inner journey that, for me personally, went to this height and then the fall. And the fall was hard and dark. And there's an element of um, rumin, um, not ruminating, but um, like digesting still like, okay, what was that? What happened? 
is there truly a good versus evil going on in our universe that is real? Or is it really mental states of belief that are creating these energies within us that we then act from? Um, so again, coming back to your question, how long did it last? There's still ripples of it. Yeah, I get that. So you described this relationship that you had with being alone on the mountain and this idealized version of selling your soul and then that would leading to rock stardom, which evidently you reneged on the deal because you didn't make it to start. <laughs> well, there's that's a, point, a question I have. Because the whole Wait, there's a point at which you turned your attention not to the dark arts, but to something else. And I have an exact experience with that because Sid was going to be part of the band and he left to go to college. And in me, I was like, that's right on point, you know, cause that fucking guy wasn't strong enough, you know, he's out and he's one of the core four. So in essence, I said, fuck you to my friend, my brother, you're out. Nothing verbally, right? But it was but just so on point. And then he quit and he came back. And I'll never forget, like I literally threw up because I realized what I had done. Like here was my brother and I had ostracized him just internally. And I was like, that's not good. And that was a definite turning point of it's not worth it. So did, did you let him know? Did you reconcile? Did he ever know that that was, had it happened for you? No. And was that like a turning point where you started to actually then move your internal awareness yeah. more and more towards what we might refer to as the light? Yeah. And so do you have a conscious relationship to it? Like, oh, now I'm going to go on the straight and narrow or was it more subtle than that? more subtle than that it was throwing back to my plantation scenario it was a realization is how good is that person living if others are suffering for that person to live that way so i was like oh that's not right like and i can also remember i had this belief of I would be a rock star and world famous, and then I'd work towards peace. I was like, oh, I got it wrong. The key is to work towards peace. Whatever comes from that, let that be. So some people talk about an epiphany, like a moment where they turn towards God and they're reborn almost instantly, like within one experience. You didn't actually, did you have that experience or was it, like I said, more gradual? My personal experience with epiphanies is the mistake is one believes that's the end. It's like, oh, I'm turning towards God. Now I don't have to worry about anything else anymore. It, and it doesn't work that way. I think, no, I get that. But my question is more about what was your experience like? Was it like a slow burn awakening? Or was there a moment where like you're like, I'm going on the straight and narrow now, man. Like I'm. I'm no, no, it was. Yeah, because. For me personally, straight and narrow is such a fucking mind fuck. It's such bullshit. There is no straight and narrow. Like, oh, you're taking this, in, this idea and concept of infinity and bringing it into straight and narrow? Okay, that doesn't equate, but good luck. So a lot of my own shift came about when more and more I wanted to build a life with a woman. And gradually I started to take my attention off of all of the freedom and more on what it would take to like build a home with her, like a, being a roommate somewhere and, you know, more of a boho and those things started to take on less and less of a priority. And so I had this internal awareness that I needed to shift how I was living and I started going to school at night, right? And um, what I found when I got back to school myself was I needed to take like math and English to get to the level of the college performance level that I needed to be at in order to continue my college education. 
And then that's how I met her was every night after work, I would go to the coffee shop in downtown Mill Valley, then known as the Depot. And I would get like a, an espresso brownie and a, and a coffee to get me through the class till 10 o'clock at night. Cause I was getting up and going to work at six and then doing, and there was no way for me to do the homework. I would do it in the afternoons after work before class. So it was this super long day. And that's how I met my wife. And she was initially really enticed by my circle of friends. There was a kind of wildness that was exciting. Right. And there was music and there was, we had these events that we did and, and, and she went like to drink and at that point, um, and I, and I should just bring into the, the, the conversation that, you know, she had her own ideas about, Kerouac. She was well read. And by that time, she had a college education. She was actually an art history major and she had read on the road and some of these things. And so for her, she could feel the vibration of that in our circle. And so as I moved away from the romantic version of, you know, boho mofo for sure, my romantic vision started to become connect with the woman and make a household together, right? What was your transition into marriage like? <laughs> a long, slow road into hell. <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair to Liz. Well, you were fair. already in hell. <laughs> hear well, well, so here's really for me, there was an experience where I realized I wanted to be a father. And um, that was a transition for me now and part of that of course is a partner in creating that home but I wanted children as a part of that scenario now did you know that before you met your wife um, I knew it when we first broke up so as you know in our tw my 20s we were on and off on and off on and off and there was a breakup so I didn't know who it would be with, but I knew that, yeah, children was something I wanted in my life. And so how did that desire shift your inner focus? Well, um, I can say that overall when my ex and I hooked up the last time in my mind there was a copacetic goal we both had of creating a family together I, I think I went to school, like I learned I could go to a university from someone. And when I realized that, I think part of me, well, I know part of me going to university was like, oh, I can possibly, I could get back with my ex in on this path. I could, yeah. So the realization of self-development would bring you closer to connection with the feminine. Academic self-development yeah a very academic path because there's self-development as you are well aware of in all sorts of realms but the academic path and you actually felt a desire to do that yeah and what did you study well so once i got into university that all disappeared because i be i loved it and i be, i studied liberal studies with a minor in women's studies Awesome. Yeah. And one of the key pieces that um, I was a part of in school was um, it was in the rec department, but it was the psychology of outdoor recreation. So learning about fear and team building and then actually doing things like I became a whitewater um, guide, got trained to be a whitewater guide. I went snow camping three times. 
you know, like cross country ski out to some remote area, set up camp and. So were these ideas of fearlessness helpful to you during that period? Absolutely. Yeah. I have an experience that stays with me of on a ropes course, just up on top of this 50 foot little platform shaking like an earthquake and everyone just watching me. I was probably there for seven minutes before I jumped out to the thing and everything in me was saying, no, you can't do this. No, but there was something where I didn't give up. I didn't just climb back down. So that experience taught me, oh, I could have absolute no way going on in me and it could still happen. And in terms of this and the timeline of you getting married, where is this? Is this right before you got married or? This is, so Liz and I conceived my senior year of university, like right before it, because I think Robin was born, Robin was alive my senior year. So the ropes course was my sophomore year, I think. So you were fearless, that fearlessness had transformed itself from a kind of crazy fearlessness to a more refined fearlessness. Is that accurate? Well, uh, what I think is accurate is I'm still in a process of learning fearlessness. I still am living in states of fear. And the way they come out is uh, anger, jealousy, uh, laziness. Can you parse that? Like, how does fear connect to laziness for you? Um, it's a great question. So this is a hypothesis. I don't know this to be real, but the hypothesis is that in pursuing an action that I believe brings me closer to the success and big life goals I have, I lay in bed and play a video game. Even though there's a part of me that goes, hey, if I got up and did that task I have, you know, then I'm one step closer to being who I really want to be. But instead, I'm still in bed playing that video game. And I, my hypothesis is there is a fear of success that is formulating a belief that I can't really achieve that big life goal. I can't live miraculously. Okay. It's a little bit different quality of fear than how we normally relate to it, right? Like it's more, it's not quite as accessible and visceral as jealousy or, you know, anger necessarily. We don't. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. But I, I think here's, here's, I think the differentiation if I was laying in bed, totally fine. And then I got up and did my task. Well, that's not lazy. I'm the one who's deemed it lazy. And it really is because I see myself doing the worst choice, not the worst, but you know, like here's two choices. I'm picking the one that isn't supporting my life goal. Yeah. That internalization of fear of success, it, it seems really abstract to people. It, it, and Super abstract. Yeah. I don't know if it's real. Right. It's debatable. But I think that when you see what we do habitually to avoid our own success, you can see, like you can see the, the, the footprint in the sand. You might not have seen the person walking there, but you can see the sand where the foot was and know that that was there. So in that way, it's, it's sort of similar. It's not as a, it's a subconscious fear. That's why we don't really have access to it. 
the internalization of uh, lack and undeservedness and uh, what will it mean about me and what will it mean about my parents? Like there's all of this stuff that, mm -hmm. that is in that dark shadow spot that we don't have conscious awareness of. And I think to give it energy does not help us move towards the miraculous life we want to live. What do you so, mean by giving it energy? Um, there's a, I believe, I think you and I have had a discussion about navel gazing and um, so there's that element of I could churn and churn and hypothesize and why am I laying in bed instead of getting up and do it or what is it my mom is it like just get the fuck out of bed and go do the task if that's what you want to do or shut up and play the game. Okay. Like there's a mind fuckery that I can do ad nauseum to no point where you can escape into the anxiousness of of what what the meaning of the fear is or you right. Can, right yeah and it's just another avoidant tactic ultimately right 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 all right well i want to talk about your aspirations not necessarily the limitations for a second because in the expression of this creative impulse that you have around your life, which I happen to know is still related to producing films and also to performing. Do you think there's a thread of that boho mofo for show um, madness that's still present? That's like- Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Like whenever I hit my ageism, and start thinking, why am I still thinking I can achieve a dream at 58? Boho mofo for show comes right in. It's like, because you can. Right, so we, there's that term, and then there's this term of, you know, miracle making. And in this conversation, we're merging them to essentially mean the same thing the idea of the conventions that limit our perceptions are the things that prevent us from achieving our highest aims. And so it's better to seek out the wild country of our aspirations than to sit in the staid rut of the path of least resistance. Yes, and in that statement you just said is where I celebrate the madness I experienced in my late teens and early 20s. I'm glad I sold my soul to the devil because I have no question for myself, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not wondering about it. Bad idea, don't do it. <laughs> okay. Do you think you yeah. bought it back at some point? What? Do you think you bought it back at some point? I don't know the answer to that because this is where it just gets really I've got a layaway plan for you. No, but here's the thing. I don't think you can sell your soul to the devil. Honestly, like my, my faith hypothesis, I can't prove it to anyone is okay. God being love, interchangeable words, love, God did not create life for suffering. So the miracle of us exists every moment, all the time, forever. And we can play out our horror story for as long as we want. And love will not change that because that would become a dictatorship. Okay. Do you think there's gifts in the horror story? I hope so. <laughs> and I even hope that with my divorce, I went into a super dark place with the divorce, the breaking up of my marriage. 
I hope that there's gifts in that. I, I know it's possible. Let me say that. When I hear of someone who's experienced a horror story in their life and they're able to alchemize it and it becomes a gift. Yeah, I know it's possible. Will I be one of those people who achieves that? I don't know. So reaching for the wild stars with the faith in the possibility of joy and love. We have the power to alchemize whatever comes across our experience. Yeah. And I think I believe we even have the power for alchemization to not be necessary because it's just 24 seven bliss no matter what. Mm. I think that's a great place to leave this edition of Tales from the Universe. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm really grateful to be part of this brotherhood. And um, I just want to encourage everyone who hears this in the future to seek out their own bliss and to find their own bohemian path to creativity and to seize the gift of this life, this miraculous life. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. I really am honored. And I will say to anyone who wants support in their journey to seek bliss, to hire you. You're a great coach. Oh, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Universe. To contact us, please go to markwentcoaching.com. M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T coaching.com.